Okay, so good evening. Um, this is Wednesday, April 21st, and we're continuing the St. Anne's Orthodox Church study of Romans. Uh, tonight, we're going to try to do Romans chapter 12, as always, taking St. John Chrysostom as our guide. And so if I may, let us open with prayer. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind, with the pure light of thy divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. Implant also in us the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God. And unto thee we ascribe glory, together with thy Father, who is from everlasting, and then all holy good and life-creating spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Okay, so um, let me share the screen here. Um, going to share that. And um, could I ask for some kind volunteer who would read for us from verse one all the way through the end of verse three. Erica, you want to go first? Sure. It's only three verses. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Thank you. Um, so uh, St. John actually covers this chapter in three homilies, the first of which is devoted more or less to the first two verses, kind of touching on the third, and about two-thirds of it is the first verse. Um, hmm. And I'm tempted to think because, um, of course, St. John is always thinking pastorally of how to move his listeners to walk in the ways of Christ, that here, you know, structurally in the letter, the beginning of chapter 12, it, you know, part of the form of a of a Greek letter or Roman letter involved, you talked about what you were actually write, writing about, and then you made a transition and spent some time sort of encouraging and exhorting your, uh, the, the recipient in some various fashion. Um, I think the technical term for that is paranesis, paranesis. And it, it's commonly viewed that the beginning of chapter 12 is where Paul turns that corner and having written about uh, doctrine and the real concerns that were on his mind for the congregation there at Rome, the church at Rome, he begins to talk more 
uh, encouragingly and to give them more direct exhortations. And of course, this is, you know, St. John often followed that same pattern in his homilies. And I wonder if this is perhaps why he gives so much attention to this very first verse. Um, I'll just mention along the way, more so than in a lot of what we have read in Romans thus far, the words in Chrysostom's translation, the, the, the version he's working with, differ from what's in the New King James, and sometimes that makes a bit of a difference. I'll try to point some of those out when we get to them. Um, so any comments or questions before we start to get actually into the text? Okay. So, um, St. John uh, sees the Apostle Paul here using this word beseech and presenting himself almost as a suppliant, as someone coming to beg us for something. And indeed, uh, this, these, wor these words, by the mercies of God, he almost presents God's mercies themselves as being benefactors who have blessed us richly, as he's written about in the previous chapters, who are now coming to ask something of us, um, as though we should recognize how much they have done for us. And what is it they're asking? Well, put it, put it briefly, that we, reverencing these mercies that have brought us countless blessings, would practice a way of life worthy of the gift we have received. And uh, Chrysostom here notes the word living, or to be living sacrifices, and says, you know, first of all, he's trying to correct anyone's false impression that when he says sacrifices were to be about killing ourselves. He also describes these sacrifices as being wholly acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. Um, I'll just mention because I happen to have come across it. This word service is like liturgizing. It's, it's liturgy, it's worship. And sometimes it's translated as worship. Uh, I think the word reasonable is sometimes translated rational. But uh, St. John points out that this distinguishes it from the Jewish worship, which was first of all material. I take it he's putting this in contrast to reasonable, that is of the reason. And secondly, that it was not even very acceptable. And here he in fact uh, quotes a number of Old Testament passages in which God is rejecting the animal sacrifices of the Israelites and calling instead for sacrifices of praise. And, um, you know, we're still on verse one, and we're going to stay there for a while. I would like to read a long paraphrased quote from St. John. Um, again, I paraphrase it not because I'm trying to correct St. John, but because the translation is uh, unwieldy and kind of hard to hear. And so I, I try to phrase it in a way that's easier to take in, but I'm trying to say the same thing he said. So he asks, how does the body become a sacrifice? Let the eye look upon no evil thing, and it becomes a sacrifice. Let your tongue Say nothing filthy, and it becomes an offering. Let your hand do no lawless deed, and it becomes a whole burnt offering. Or rather, that is not enough, but we must have good works also. Let the hand give alms. 
the mouth bless those who oppose us, and the hearing always make time for scripture readings. For sacrifice allows nothing unclean, sacrifices the first fruits of the other actions. Let us then from our hands and feet and mouth and other members yield first fruits unto God. Such a sacrifice is well pleasing, as that of the Jews was even unclean, for scripture says in Hosea 9:4, their sacrifices are unto them as the bread of mourning. Unquote. Not so ours, that is, our sacrifices are not unclean. Theirs presented the sacrificed thing dead. Ours makes the sacrificed thing living. For when we have mortified our members, then we shall be able to live. For the law of this sacrifice is new, and so the fire is a marvelous one. For it needs no wood or other fuel under it, but our, fi but our fire lives of itself and does not burn up the victim, but rather makes him live. This was the sacrifice that God sought of old. Thus the prophet says, the sacrifice of God is a broken spirit, in Psalm 50 or 51. And the three children offer this when they say, at this time there is neither prince nor prophet or leader or burnt offering or place to sacrifice before thee and to find mercy. Nevertheless, in a contrite heart and a humble spirit, let us be accepted. And this is from uh, the Song of the Three Youths in Daniel 3, which at least in the Orthodox Study Bible is verses 38 through 39. And observe how exactly he uses each word. For he does not say, offer your bodies as a sacrifice, but present them. And here he's distinguishing two Greek words, um, translated offer and present. But present them as if he had, as if he had said, never have any further interest in them. You have given them up to another. For even they who present war horses for use in battle, I take it this was like contributing them to the cause of the war, uh, in battle have no further interest in them. And you too have presented your members for the war against the devil and that dread battle array. Do not give them over to comply with selfish desires. And the apostle also shows from this that we must make them approved if we mean to present them. For we present them not to a mortal being, but to God, the king of the universe, and not only for war, but to have the king himself be seated on them. Take it, he's taking the picture of the war horse again. For he does not refuse even to be seated upon our members, but even greatly desires it. And what no earthly king, who is merely our fellow servant, would choose to do, the Lord of angels chooses. Since then our body is both to be presented as for a king's use, and as a sacrifice, rid it of every spot, since if it has a spot, it will no longer be a sacrifice. For you cannot sacrifice the eye that looks lecherously, nor present the hand that is grasping and rapacious, nor the feet that go lame and go to playhouses, nor the belly that is the slave of self-indulgence and kindles lusts after pleasures, nor the heart that has rage in it and harlots love, nor the tongue that utters filthy things. Hence we must seek the spots on our body on every side, for if those who offered sacrifices of old were commanded to look on every side and were not permitted to offer, offer an animal, quote, that has anything superfluous or lacking or is scurvy or scabbed, unquote, from Leviticus 22, much more must we who offer not senseless animals but ourselves be stricter and purer in all respects that we may be able to say with Paul, 
quote, I am now ready to be offered and the time of my departure is at hand, unquote, from 2 Timothy 4, 6. For he was purer than any sacrifice, and so he speaks of himself as ready to be offered. But this will come about if we kill the old man, if we mortify our members that are upon the earth, if we crucify the world under ourselves. In this way, we shall not need the knife anymore, nor altar, nor fire, or rather we shall want all these, but not made with hands. But all of them will come to us from above, fire from above, and knife also, and our altar will be the breadth of heaven. For if, when Elijah offered the visible sacrifice, a flame that came down from above consumed all the water, wood, and stones, much more will this be done to you. And if anything in you is not as it should be and is worldly, and yet you offer the sacrifice with a good intention, the fire of the Spirit will come down and both wear away that worldliness and perfect the whole sacrifice. So I thought that was St. John being lyrical and eloquent and saying wonderful things about the first verse and wanted to share the whole passage with you. I don't understand his distinct, distinction between present and offer. I mean, he says it says present and not offer, but then it seems like he then proceeds to talk about, about, about the presentation as if it is an offering, even comparing it to the quality of the offering that, that was made of the animals in, in, in Old Testament sacrifices. You understand what I'm saying, Reed? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, he's he's suggesting, I think, that the the expected word in the Greek would have been a word that w was translated offer. Right. But in fact, the word that appears there is a word like present. Um, and he gives the example, as best I understand it, of citizens who, when there is a war effort going on, they have war horses that they own, that they have trained, and they present them for the use of Rome. They furnish them to the battle. Furnish is actually how it's translated, but it's the same word. The, uh, do, 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 you, do you think it's a distinction between, uh, well, living sacrifices, the, a distinction between offering something Maybe, maybe maybe the problem was that offering carries connotations of, of killing something and and presenting something is not well, the, the killing it. You understand thing, what I'm saying? It, right. I mean, it's, it's hard, I think, to distinguish between those two because they are very close in meaning in English. Yeah. But his particular take on it is that this word present has the idea that you are giving this thing up, you have no more interest in it. Right. You know, you turn the war horses over to the army and thereafter you have no for further concern. They are the armies. And that's the only distinction that I think he's actually making here. I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. I see. What and so saying. it's like, we are to present our bodies to God and not expect to get them back. It's like, we've lost interest in them. Yeah, I gave that body okay. up, not mine anymore. I no longer care what happens to it. Okay, yeah, I kind of see that. I kind of see how making an offering, the offering would still be ours. It would mm -hmm. be our offering. And he's talking about doing actually a bit more than that, mm -hmm. in, in, in a sense. I, 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 I think I see. I, I'm sorry to be so thick-headed. No, no. I mean, 
The other thing he's talking about, he's talking about, it seems like a list of, you know, of uh, behaviors he doesn't approve of, and one of them was going to playhouses. Yes. <laughs> but I wanted to be clear, he did not see anything about going to the opera, right? <laughs> not in so many words, no. <laughs> okay, fine. Okay, that's, that's all I need. That's all the lawyer needs. I just... <laughs> However, the present day opera is probably okay, but pre-Wagner, no. <laughs> all right all right all right, all right, all right. Did, did wagner kind of tame it down um as far as the expectation of those who went to the opera beforehand it was just kind of a free-for-all party and the performers just happened to uh be singing and acting and doing what they did on the stage and uh, audience members would just talk and gossip and do whatever uh, and then uh, it really wasn't until around Wagner that people actually went to the opera to to see the opera right, you sit oh, there sit there and be quiet and, and pay and pay attention yes is what you're saying yeah yeah prior prior to that time it was more like uh well, more like an original performance of Shakespeare at the Globe Theater with <laughs> hardly anybody paying attention. Well, and I mean, I'm sure you both know that in the ancient world, the reputation of the theater was, you know, oh yes, maybe one step above prostitution. It was said the actress to the bishop. Yeah. So, I understand. I understand. I just had to. <laughs> I just thought it'd be clever. I don't, don't yes. like it. <laughs> and you were. You succeeded very pleasantly. Oh, thank you. Um, other comments? I, I read at great length. I feel like I should breathe and let you all have a chance to comment. Well, it, but the thing that strikes me overall is, is what you started with, is the fact that he spends so much time on the first two verses or, 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 or the first three verses. Mm-hmm. I thought that was very interesting, uh, and and uh, <laughs> I hope to open a can of worms, but almost evangelical, uh, <laughs> because I don't know much about evangelicals, but I do I do know that they spend a lot of time with these three verses. Mm-hmm. Yes, and the old navigator's topical memory system, tw- Romans twelve one and two, was one of the. The standard pairs of verses to memorize. Yeah, Garrison Keillor's got a wonderful story about uh, this woman dedicating, decorating a, a cake for somebody's confirmation, some young man's confirmation. Mm-hmm. And, and and she asked her daughter, "What you do? I was going to put the Bible verse on here. Do you know what the Bible verse is?" She said, "Oh, it's Romans twelve too." And she said, "Oh, oh, read it to me while I decorate the cake." Well, you know, be ye not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable. And by the time she gets good and acceptable, the will of God, she, the woman's on the side of the cake. It's <laughs> <laughs> you know? a long verse. It's a yeah. But especially in the King James, I think it's one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. I love that. I think everybody does. Mm-hmm. This kind of has, um, I guess, echoes to me, uh, St. John Chrysostom homily on fasting. Uh, I pulled it up just to kind of make sure I got it. Uh, but 
what gain is there when on one hand we avoid eating chicken and fish and on the other we chew up and consume our brothers uh yes. so it's uh -huh. the it's yes what we do is important as far as like uh adhering to to fasting as is set forth with our priests and such mm -hmm. like that but if that's the only thing we're doing like that's that's not enough mm -hmm. yeah i think that's very much in the same spirit as, as what he's saying here well it's a long chapter we better go to verse two Rita. yeah well, <laughs> almost there he does talk about this uh this last uh this phrase reasonable service reasonable or rational and uh, yeah. service um and he says this means spiritual ministry a way of life according to christ and he says as the man who ministers in the house of god collects himself and becomes more dignified we should adopt the same attitude viewing our whole life as a ministry becoming the priest of our own body and the virtue of our soul for instance by offering soberness almsgiving goodness and forbearance this is reasonable or rational service without anything bodily gross or visible. So I guess, again, this is all in contrast to having an animal up there and, and slaughtering it on the, on the altar. This is where I wish Father was here because I've always been struck by during the liturgy when you hear, we offer up this rational service, this rational liturgy. Do you all know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point in the prayers, I think it's close to the, or, or part of the Eucharistic portion of the service, am I right? Mm, I rational guess. rational worship, I think, is the phrase I'm thinking of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and that's always struck me. Uh, you think it's the same definition, you think it's the same definition, you think the term's being used in the same way, that it's not a, I, I would guess so. The Erica knows the Greek, maybe so. And would you mind to read it again? Because this is kind of a deal with me. I... Read what, what Chris what Chrysostom said: reasonable or rational oh, services. Reasonable service means spiritual ministry, a way of life according to Christ. As the man who ministers in the house of God collects himself and becomes more dignified. We should adopt the same attitude, viewing our whole life as a ministry, becoming the priest of our own body and the virtue of our soul. For instance, by offering soberness, almsgiving, goodness, and forbearance. This is reasonable or rational service without anything bodily gross or visible. Huh. Okay. And I think the point here, um, though I would happily be corrected, is that this is as opposed to merely outward material physical service this is inward service of the mind of the heart you know done with understanding okay yeah well then let's erica you got the greek did you look for the greek eric erica pulling up pulling it up momentarily here okay <laughs> thank you I, I hate to slow you down on this tree, but like I say, because the term shows up in, in, in the liturgy, uh, that's... Mm -hmm. 
Well, I think this is a word that the fathers often dealt with, and it meant a lot to them. So it's, yeah. it seems like a good thing to ask about. Let me pull it up on a different uh, one. The one app that I'm using has it. The sentence structure is a little bit hard for me to assess out. So okay. um, I appreciate you working on it. Well, I, I'm, again, I apologize for slowing everything down. Well, no, no worries. I mean, just, just group study. This is what we're here for. And after we get past this first verse, I think we will be able to move at a faster clip. Uh, the word is uh, logiken, I think is how you, or logiken, probably. So I'm assuming it's the same etymology as logos, but mm -hmm. uh, let me double check. It looks like it is the same etymology as logos. Okay. Huh. 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 It now. No, that's Eric, intriguing. You're getting the word out of the um, out of the liturgy, out of the service, or out of the Bible text here. Uh, out of the Bible text here uh, for. Okay. First one, uh, yeah, from the logiken or logikos, uh, and I do not do the conjugation of Greek very well, <laughs> of any language very well. So, <laughs> well, believe me, that's okay. okay. But that sounds right, and I, I, I mean, I would certainly very comfortably assume that that's also the word from the the liturgy. But again. Maybe we can ask Father Daniel uh, next time we get together with him. Thank you, Erica. You're welcome. Yeah, I, so. yeah, yeah. I know you want to move on. We can. I just got to say, I'm intrigued. If it's got this, if it has the same root as logos, you got to admit that's intriguing. Mm -hmm. uh, given the given the use of the word logos in John's Gospel, it's huh. Mm -hmm. There's something going on there. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think it has a somewhat different meaning from our common use of the words reasonable or rational. It's, you know, just like logos means more than just word or mind or whatever. Yeah, I'm wondering whether or not it has ordered 
not necessarily orderly, but ordered, uh, as in in good order. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see what I'm saying? Uh, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think that seems conceivable, but again, I'm probably the least qualified person here to comment on the word. Yeah. 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 So maybe we should move on and yeah, try to make a note to ask sorry. Father Daniel about that. No, no, don't apologize. It's, I mean, it's what we're here to do, right? Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. I, I, I understand that. I understand that. I just, you know, you know me. You've been with me before. I'll get hung up on word, <laughs> word, and I'll spend the whole night on that word. You know, it, uh, yeah. well, better if we try to answer the questions people really have than yeah. answering ones that no one does. Okay. So, verse two: Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Um, and St. John, again, gives a lot of attention to the words that are translated conformed and transformed. Um, the, the, the text I was working from, St. John is translating the word as fashioned rather than conformed. And it seems very much mm -hmm. that he, he, he's distinguishing between, between two Greek words that translate, translate transliterate as schema and metamorphon, or I assume metamorphosis. And he's distinguishing one as being something that is transient and unstable, and the other one being a real, natural, enduring form. Um, and so he talks about the world's fashions, riches, glory, beauty of body, luxury, etc., are groveling, worthless, worthless, unsubstantial, perverted, and transient. And if we throw those aside, we will soon come to the true form. Um, and that's what we need to do. Um, but talking about renewing the mind, the way he, uh, St. John reads this is that the apostle recognizes that his hearers are still likely to go on sinning daily. And he says that they need to renew themselves. And he uses this almost as we would use the word renovate because <laughs> He talks about, well, our houses get old and start to fall apart. We have to renovate them and keep them up. And he says, this is what we need to do with our, ourselves and our lives as well. He says, if we've made our, ourselves old by sin today, we should not despair, but renovate ourselves by repentance, confession, tears, and good works. Um And uh, he talks about those who are engrossed in the fashions of the world. And he says, they make, you know, he says, if you do these things, you will prove the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. But he says, those who don't make themselves ignorant of the will of God because God wills what's beneficial for us. And this tends to involve things like living in poverty, lowliness of mind, contempt of glory, self control rather than self indulgence, tribulation rather than ease, and sorrow rather than dissipation and laughter. And in every other, you know, there are many other matters that are like this but that most people look at the things that are beneficial to us and use them as misfortunes. They don't recognize in them the will of God. And this keeps many people from laboring for virtue at all and teaches them instead to reverence vice. And so he has this lovely quote, and this is one that stuck with me for many years. 
He says, thus we need to have a correct understanding. Even if we do not follow virtue, we should praise virtue. And even if we do not avoid vice, we should stigmatize vice so that our judgments are uncorrupted. Then down the road, we will be able to hold on, lay hold on the realities. And I thought at times, that's very encouraging. It's like, you know, St. John is saying, look, maybe you don't find it in you to practice virtue. At least keep saying what is virtuous and praising it. And you may not be able to avoid vice, but at least keep saying that it's vice. And then in time, in God's mercy, you, you may attain to the, the realities of the things that you're naming. That is very good. That is very good. That is very encouraging. Yeah, I think so as well. So uh, in verse 3, um, I'm going to skip over a lot of the details. Again, St. John finds so much meaning in every word. Um, but here in particular, uh, he talks about not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think soberly. And um, what St. John says is the lesson here is the importance of lowliness of mind, the mother of good deeds. And he notes this is also where our Lord began in his instruction in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. Um, and this word sober, he contrasts to haughtiness. He says there are people who, realizing they've learned some wisdom, become really haughty about it. And um, this haughtiness leads them to reckless living, reckless acts, and the con what's contrary to recklessness is being sober. And so when he's saying sober here, what it really means is lowliness of mind, stay away from haughtiness over having lived, learned some wisdom. Makes me think of that recent uh, blog post by Father Stephen about uh, healthy shame. Oh, uh-huh. Humility is healthy shame. Yeah. Sobriety. Uh, not thinking of oneself more highly than he ought to think. Mm -hmm. I think all these ideas are related to each other. That's why I bring it up. I think there's you know, yeah. a sense of that. And it's interesting to think that some of what's being discussed now under the term shame would have been thought of here as lowliness of mind or as humility. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. St. John notes here that God does give, in fact, he uses the word deal. He deals to each one a measure of faith, and he says, you know, God has already given us these, these wonderful gifts. He's blessed us with faith. We shouldn't be distressed at how he apportions it, because he gave it to us out of love for us, and in wisdom, we shouldn't doubt that he was also with equal love and wisdom choosing the portions for us. Um, and yet, St. John will also say, oops, okay, sorry, we need to go on to the next verses now. Uh, so would someone be so kind as to read for us verses four down through eight? I'll do that. Thank you. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given us, 
let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in a proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Thank you. And um, St. John um, says that the apostle is continuing here to warn against haughtiness. And so he gives us several reasons not to be haughty. First of all, he emphasizes that the gifts here are different, not greater or lesser. Mm -hmm. And that we are members of one body and of one another. And that all of our gifts are of grace are of grace. So we share all the honor that comes from them. We don't exalt ourselves above each other. And we recognize all of it's a gift in any case. Um, and yet at the same time, he recognizes here that the use of the gifts lies in us. And he's urging us to vie with one another in our service and to labor earnestly and He's showing by this that the differences in the gifts come from the differences in the recipients, that the gifts are, of grace are not poured out at random, but according to what the recipients are capable of and according to what their measure of faith is. Uh, so, you know, we, we see these two truths constantly presented by St. John. It's all a gift, and yet how we respond matters a great deal. We, we, we're never free to despair and we're never free to grow listless as though how we respond doesn't matter. Um, St. John also goes through and points out that um, each of these virtues, not only, it's not adequate simply for it to be done, but it needs to be done in a particular way. And I'm thinking, uh, if you've heard on ancient faith, Father Stephen's uh, comments about uh, this book of um, in the Psalms. I'm sorry, I don't remember the details at the moment, but he makes the comment, in the spiritual life, two things matter, what we do and how we do it. And that's exactly what St. John is saying here. It's like, we need to have these virtues, but we need to have them according to the proper rule. Okay? You know, if, if you're... Uh, you know, if you're leading, doing with diligence. Do it with diligence. If you're giving, give with liberality. If you're showing mercy, do it cheerfully. Um, and down even to verse 9, uh, let love be, if you're loving, it has it needs to be without hypocrisy, or his, his word is without dissimulation. There needs to be no false appearance to it. Um, so, the, so that's always struck me about verse 6, and I think you're telling us, John, St. John is consistent with that, is that it says, let us use them. Mm -hmm. Now, that's in italics. Now, what's the significance of the italics? I forgot. Usually, the italics mean, as I understand it, that these words are not actually in the original text, but they are being filled in to give us the right sense of it, to make it flow in English. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. So, you know, the, it, it's not that they don't belong there. It's that 
it helps us make the right sense of it in English if they put them in, even though they, those actual words are not there in the Greek. So a literal translation then would be, would, would be having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given us. But if you read it in the original Greek, it's also going to have the, that, 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 that might be the denotation, but it's going to have that connotation of not just having, but using. Mm -hmm. Yes? Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so, um, you know, so St. John, for instance, talks about mercy at great length, not a surprise. Um, says mercy must be with largeness and ungrudging, even with cheerful and rejoicing attitude. Um, he says you lose the advantage of giving if you grieve at doing it. Because men who are already in distressed positions feel disgraced at receiving from others. And you have to allay that by giving to them cheerfully. Yeah. And in fact, we are receiving great rewards from giving. We're receiving a kingdom and pardon for sins when we give alms. And cheerful giving then increases the gift. He mentions the widow's mites. And reluctant giving diminishes it and the reward. And um, he says later, talking from verse 9, essentially, whenever we practice any of these virtues, we should recognize that we ourselves are the beneficiaries of it. So, you know, when we give to someone, we should consider that, oh, we are receiving great riches by giving. And so give with all the cheerfulness we would if someone suddenly bestowed a treasure to us. So, if I may pick up at verse 9, St. John notes here that everything we've been looking at, and especially now verses 9 through 13, these are all instructions about how we relate to one another within the church. So he says, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, or with, with brotherly love honoring, uh, in honor, let me try that in English. Be kindly <laughs> affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Amen. Um, that, that's a church. Yeah. And so he says, love is the mother of virtues. If we have it, we won't perceive any loss in giving away money, labor, toil, trouble, or ministering, or anything else to our neighbor. Um, he says, he comments, however, there are false loves. Some men love money or love drink. And so Paul also tells us, abhor what is evil, that is, hate it greatly. Um, and so in particular, we should not love others in such a fashion that we begin cooperating in bad actions. Um, but then he pushes on the other side and says, and uh, cleave to what is that to what is good, also a very strong word. 
picking up at verse 10, be kindly affectionate to one another in brotherly love. He says, you know, we, we've all been born of the same labor. We should love one another as brothers with great warmth, with great friendship. And he contrasts this to verse 18, where toward outsiders, we try to live peaceably as much as we can. Um, and then he begins talking about how do we produce this sort of affection with one another? Well, first of all, we try to outdo one another in showing in showing honor to each other. And then in verse 11, this not lagging in diligence. Um, Chrysostom's word there is zeal. And what he understands it to mean is a readiness to protect. He says, for honor and forethought makes men beloved. That is, when we are devoting ourselves to showing greater honor to each other than to ourselves, and when we take thought for how we can protect each other, then this greatly promotes love among us. Um, and then fervent in spirit, he talks about how each of these virtues, St. Paul intensifies it. You don't merely give, you give liberally. You do not merely show mercy, you do it cheerfully. We're always aiming for the higher degree. And he says this sort of fervency draws the Holy Spirit to us. So when he says he's fervent in spirit, he seems to take that as a reference to the Holy Spirit and says, if we are warmed on both sides by the Holy Spirit and by love, then no enemy, not even the devil himself, is going to be able to withstand us if we are glowing with that flame. And this is how we serve the Lord, because what we are thus doing to our brother, he takes as being done to himself. He follows up with verse 12, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. He says, these are the fuel for the flame of the spirit and of love. He says, a good, a good hope makes the soul courageous. Patience gives us a reward right now. We don't just have to wait for the future, but right now we become hardy and we become tried. And then we have the additional weapon and protection of prayer. And so his comment is, when we have love to make things easy and the spirit helping and hope lightening the load and tribulation making us tried and ready to bear everything nobly, and the great aid of prayer and all the assistance it brings, what can be grievous about what the apostle, the apostle enjoins us to do? In every way, Paul gives the wrestler a firm footing and shows that his injunctions are perfectly easy. And so this is again a theme we've often seen in St. John that yes, the apostle Paul tells us all these things we should be doing, all of these virtues we should practice, but done in the right attitude and with all the blessings and mercy and grace of God and the Holy Spirit, they're all meant to be easy. I don't know that this is exactly my experience, but I think St. John knows better than I do. Comments, questions? Um, in verse 13, he takes these words, um, in New King James, it says, distributing to the needs of saints. In his translation, it's sharing with the needs of saints. And he says, this is to indicate that this is not something where we give and someone else receives. It's all sharing. 
because we always gain more than we give up. We bring money, the other brings us boldness before God. One to whom we give it makes us bold before God. We should be given to hospitality, not merely doing it when asked, but rather seeking out and running to help the people whom we could uh, be hospitable to. I guess I'd like to say that these verses 9 through 13, mm -hmm. they really remind me of our church. Mm -hmm. I think they're really good descriptors for our church. Don't you agree? Yeah, I do. This is, what, this is what makes our church our church. Yeah, I think there is a great deal of, uh, of zeal and unity of mind there. And it's, yeah, yeah. it's lovely. Yeah, in honor of giving preference to one another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Be kindly affectionate to each other, not liking indulgence, fervent in spirits, spirit, you know, just spirit, serving the Lord. Yeah, I just, yeah. 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 Given to hospitality, distributing to the needs of the saints. Yeah, it's, it's all there. This, this, our, this is all our church. This is all. No need to point any particular one out. So, uh, would someone be so kind as to read now from 14 through the end? I will. Thank you. Unless you'd like to, Erica, I don't want to. I'm okay. I can read it if you, or uh, you can either give way. Give it a give it a go, girl. Give it a go. You only read three right. verses to begin with. <laughs> you could do the big finish. So we're starting from 14. Yes, please. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one, no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceable, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For in doing so, you will reap heaps of coal of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Thank you. Now, St. John understands the apostle here to be making a shift, beginning in verse 14, to be talking about our relations to those who are outside the church. And that's sort of interesting, some of the comments then. Um, he first of all says, well, Paul has first of all, all talked about how we relate to each other and said, now, if we've learned to do that, we're in a better position to relate well to the people outside. So, uh, first of all, we are not only not to be spiteful to those who may be persecuting us, but in fact, we are positively to bless them. We are also not to curse them, lest we bless and curse. Uh, and he says, well, why? Because those who persecute us bring us a reward. Okay. And, and this is something that St. John really is very uh, definite about and, and it keeps in front of his eyes. I, I've been reading his letters to St. 
uh, Olympia, where and he's writing these from exile and from a great deal of maltreatment. And he takes the same view about all the things that people are doing to him is saying, oh, well, you know, this is surely going to bring me a good reward. This will certainly cancel some of my sins. Uh, he, he sees that all of these things are, are a blessing or a reward to him. So he certainly practiced this and that uh, gives it a great deal of force. But he says, now, those who persecute us bring us a reward, but if we respond with blessing, then we give ourselves a second reward. For this, in fact, shows great love for Christ. And on the other hand, if we start cursing our persecutors, that seems to indicate that we're displeased with suffering for Christ. Um, but he says also, when we treat our adversaries well, this shows them that we're traveling to another life if we respond joyfully. Um, and it often has the uh, tendency, well, no, I think he says it stronger than that. I think he says, and if we respond well to them, they'll leave off their ill treatment. I want to ease it because I, I think surely that's not really as definite as he puts it, but I, I think that is how he says it. So in verse 15, when he says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, he takes this to mean the joys and the, the rejoicing and weeping of our persecutors and to respond to them as we would out of uh, with warm friends. And he says, now, it's not, in some sense, all that hard to weep with them when they weep because we have some natural sense of compassion for those who are suffering. But to look at our persecutor being uh, esteemed and honored and then to rejoice with him rather than envying, that's a much greater thing. Um, and so he says, when we weep with them, we make ourselves merciful. And when we rejoice with them, we purge ourselves of envy and grudging. And so if we cannot relieve our persecutors' calamities, we can at least reduce it by half by uh, shedding tears for them. And if we can't increase their prosperity, we can at least or establish their prosperity. We can at least add to it by our joy. Um, again, if you have anything you want to say or ask, please jump right in. Otherwise, I'll just keep kind of trudging along here. In verse 16, when he reads, be of the same mind toward one another, again, he's thinking of, you know, sort of everyone, in particular those outside the church. He says, the main, the, the first point here is lowliness of mind. And this is important because he's writing to the Romans. And again, in the ancient world, the city that you were from gave you a certain standing. And to be from Rome, that gave you quite a bit of standing. And so um, he said they, the Romans were likely to be high-minded, and that kind of vanity is a major source of schism. So it's important for them to be low-minded. But also where he reads be like-minded, he sees this as meaning we should view others the same way we view ourselves. So if you really think extremely well of yourself, well, think well of your neighbor too. Or if you think that your neighbor is mean and lowly, well, think that of yourself too. Just, you know, have the same view of yourself and the other man. Uh, when he says, um, where is it?
Oh, yeah, sorry, I was the wrong chapter, uh, wrong uh, paragraph. Uh, associate with the humble, he means those who are of low estate or low rank. He says, associate with them, walk with them, reach out your hand to help them in person, not just through some other person. Care for them as a father would care for his children. And this wise in your own opinion, he takes to mean that you have an attitude that you can do for yourself. You don't need anyone else's help. He says, when you think you can do for yourself without anyone else's help, you feel like you're different from other people and it cuts you off from their assistance and correction and pardon. But in fact, often the wise man misses what is needed and the man of less wisdom hits on it. And he gives the examples of Moses in the Old Testament who needed the advice of his father-in-law about Saul in the Old Testament who needed his advice of the advice of a servant that was on how to find the donkeys that his father had lost and Isaac with Rebecca and I take it that this means that um, refers either to Rebecca who knew it was Jacob who should receive the blessing and not Esau or Jacob who knew that it would be good for Isaac to uh, for Jacob to run off so that Esau didn't have the chance to kill him but in any case uh, the one who was known as the man of wisdom sometimes missed something and needed to listen to someone else and so he says it exalts us and makes us stronger brighter and more secure when we need other people if i can mention just to go back a little bit okay sure <clears throat> today it just so happened i read uh book eight in milton's paradise lost i don't know if you guys are familiar with paradise lost are you a little. Erica is nods. Reed says a little. Book eight is where uh, uh, Adam is, Raphael, Angel Raphael's talking to Adam. This is before the fall. Mm, okay. And in, in book eight, uh, one of the, the is where uh, uh, Adam asks Raphael to explain how the universe works. Uh, and it's it's book eight is interesting because uh, uh, this was at the time of uh, uh, Milton wrote this at the time of Galileo. Uh, Milton was a contemporary of Galileo. As a matter of fact, he met Galileo. Oh, okay. And uh, uh, but so it's right 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 at the point where uh, there's there's the conflict between the Copernican and the Ptolemaic version of the solar system, right? So, mm -hmm. anyhow, that's probably why it ends up at Book Gate and Paradise Lost. But finally, what Raphael says to Adam is almost word for word do not set your mind on high things, but be humble. Mm. And it just struck me. Mm -hmm. You see where Milton got that directly out of Romans. Mm -hmm. It's an echo, obvious, an obvious echo of of, of, of Romans. Yeah, well, I just thought I'd throw, I just thought I'd throw that in. So often, Western literature, or somebody once said, you can't understand Western literature if you don't understand the Bible. I just thought it just struck me that that's another mm -hmm. example of it. You get you. you know. Yeah. You know, you know, because there's. 
things are said in Western literature all the time that are, that are actually references, but if you don't know the text, if you don't know the biblical text, you're not going to pick up on that. Right. Thank you. Thanks for mentioning that. Yeah, sure, sure. It's kind of a fun um, aside. So, St. John uh, looks at verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, and his comment is, well, if someone plots against you, don't lay yourself open to the same accusation by plotting against him. And if he did you badly, why don't you shun imitating him? And uh, he notes here that this same rule applies both to relations with believers and to those outside. And then in verse 18, it's a very interesting one. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And so um, St. John has a number of very interesting things to say about this. He, he says this is, this is the practice of let your light so shine before men, not that we live for vanity, like just, you know, for a show before them, but that we give no handle to those who oppose us. I thought that was very interesting as a comment on, on the Sermon on the Mount. It's like, we're not living to impress anyone, but we do live in such a way that we give them no grounds to accuse us, no legitimate grounds. And he comments on these words, if it is possible, he says sometimes it's not. So he says, uh, for instance, when we argue about religion or when we contend for someone or for those who are wronged. And he says, now this is not surprising because even in marriage in uh, Corinthians, the apostle Paul talking to a believing spouse married to an unbelieving partner who doesn't want to put up with his Christianity says, well, let the unbeliever go. So, you know, if even in marriage, sometimes this can't be maintained, you can't live in uh, together in peace, then how much more with just unbelievers in general? And so uh, here's a bit of a quote here. He says, do your own part. Give no occasion of war or fighting to Jew or Gentile. But if you see the cause of religion suffering anywhere, do not price concord above truth, but make a noble stand even to death. And even then be not at war in soul, but be, sorry. And even then be not at war in soul, be not averse in temper, but fight with the things only. Um, and and I, I thought that was really striking. I mean, I think we sort of have some idea of this, but to see St. John say it so plainly, you know, don't, mm -hmm. don't give anyone a cause for war, but don't be so given to peace that you would give up truth, especially the, the truth of our religion. Mm -hmm. And in, in that case, take the stand even to the death. But even if you have to, Take a stand and stand in the battle. You know, essentially, don't hate your enemies. Just fight about, you know, the, the matters at hand. Continue to love your enemies. And he goes on and says, if the other will not be in peace, do not fill your soul with tempest, but in mind be friendly, but without giving up the truth on any occasion. And I don't know that any of that's really startling or unexpected, but it's very nice to see St. John confirming it so strongly. Yeah. 
And then um, this last bit, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. And St. John clarifies, this wrath is the wrath of God. So he says, if you want to have revenge in full measure, leave room, you know, then le let God be your avenger. But he doesn't stop there. He says, now the apostle calls us to more than that. So he says, you must go beyond keeping peace merely to doing kindness to your enemy. Verses 20 and 20, uh, verse 20. But this is a hard command, right? It's kind of hard to do kindness to your enemy. So he says, Paul makes it lighter for us by speaking of heaping coals on his head. He says, and this also not only gives us a reason to be kind, but it also gives our enemy a reason to be afraid and to repent because he's going to get coals on his head. Um, and he says, because an enemy, even a brute, will not continue an enemy when you feed him. But also, when you're feeding him and giving him drink, you're going to lose your craving for his punishment. And so St. John takes it that what the Apostle Paul is really doing here is teaching these Christians in Rome to love their enemies. And he trusts simply that if they will put in practice what he's saying, if, he, if they will feed and give drink to their enemies and treat them with kindness, they in fact will not be able to maintain hostility and the desire for, the, for revenge against them. They will in fact um, give up their grudge and, um, you know, and, and begin to be warmly disposed even to those who are treating them badly. And so this is, you know, if you were to hold on to the grudge would be being overcome with evil there in verse 21, but rather we're to overcome evil by good. That is, we are to withdraw from the battle. We won't fight, which makes our enemy waste his energies against us because we aren't responding in kind. So he doesn't get the rise out of us that he wants. He doesn't have any satisfaction in enraging us. And so it is a way of overcoming him. Is that uh, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, you give him drink. If you're in foreign doing so, you'll heap coals of fire on his head. Is, is that a quote from Proverbs or Psalms? I feel like that's a quote from someplace else. Am I wrong about that? Um, I didn't see a footnote in it. You know, I don't know. It's set apart as a quote, but it's not footnoted here, and I don't think I saw it in uh, the notes here from St. John either. That's what verse 20 I feel like I ought to know, but I just don't. I feel like I ought to know, too. But maybe I've just heard it from Romans so often, I think it's a quote from something else. He's, I mean, the, the way it's written, he's obviously quoting something. But, uh... Well, I mean, it, you know, when something is set apart like that, it could be that the, uh, the translators take it that this was a saying or a hymn or something that was well known among the Christians. And so he's yeah. reciting something familiar to them. Also, could be the way the text was set out on the what they were translating. Okay, I'm doing just a quick search here to see if I can turn anything up. Hang on a minute. 
This is Proverbs 25, 25, or 24 and 25. If your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him drink. For by doing this, you shall heap coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you with good things. So, yes, you are exactly right. It's from Proverbs 25. It's Proverbs. Okay. Yes. Okay. So, kind of an odd balance tonight. Half our time on verse one, the rest, the other half plus a little bit on yeah. the other 20 verses. <laughs> By the way, I found a note, a note in uh, the Orthodox Study Bible. Yes. On reasonable. Oh, good. Yes. Going back up say? to, uh, that's verse one, right? Yes. Yeah. Reasonable service. Reasonable. Where to go? Come back. Come back to me. <laughs> uh, reasonable. Greek. Logiki. This term means more than logical. As Jesus Christ is the logos of God, John 1, 1, true worship must be logos-like, which means it must be in Christ and according to Christ. See John chapter 4, verse 24. True worship is filled with the wisdom and truth of the Son of God, the Word made flesh. To worship reasonably means both to worship and to live according to Christ. Hmm. So there you go. Because the, the Orthodox Study Bible says that uh, 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 service here refers to liturgical service and is better translated worship. Okay, mm -hmm. and that just as man's failure to worship God led to his downfall, so now true worship is the first expression of mankind's renewal, and that this true worship is physical, living, holy, and reasonable. So, and then they go through each one of those terms. Oh, thank you. So there is a link with that reasonable service and 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 the and the use of the word rational or reasonable in. Uh... Mm-hmm. That makes sense. If you consider the Orthodox Study Bible to be a reliable source. <laughs> it's certainly a helpful contribution to the discussion. Yeah. I consider it to be a reliable source. <laughs> I'll also listen to Father Stephen E. Young, and I've heard Father Stephen E. Young sometimes say, well, I know that's what the Orthodox Study Bible says, but it's wrong. But he's Father D. Young. <laughs> You can say that. Okay. Well, let me bring us back up where we can see each other better. Yeah. Any parting thoughts, comments, questions, critiques? Okay. Very useful. Good night. And, and, and I appreciate what you said. It's a very interesting evening because you spend appropriately spend so much time, half the time in the first three verses and then the other half the time in the other 17. <laughs> Yeah. Well, the, it's good. Uh, Go ahead. I was just going to say that's the nature of Romans 12. Yep. Um, I should mention, uh, and I'll still get this on the recording, that uh, when Father Daniel talked about it last week, his plan was that this study will not meet either of the next two weeks. 
right. because, of course, next Wednesday is Holy Wednesday, and the Wednesday after that is Bright Wednesday, and our priests will be recovering from Holy Week <laughs> and Pascha. Um, so I think the current plan, of course, keep an eye on emails from the church, but um, I think the current plan is for us to pick up this study again three weeks from tonight. And I would guess, though it is a guess, that we would return to our more traditional meeting time of 7.30 immediately after Vespers. But again, look for a confirmation in the Sacramental Life emails from St. Anne. Okay. And with that, I will stop the recording. Thank you so much for doing this, Reed. I really appreciate you. Oh, well, you're very kind. You're quite welcome.